Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. to uh, deliver a message. It's an old theme, but uh, it's a needful theme. It seems like I come to this portion of Scripture in my thinking about every four years. It should be more often. I do think about the theme of it more often, but uh, it's amazing as I look back in my study log and in my teaching and preaching, it's about a four-year cycle that uh, the Lord really cements this into my thinking. I was thinking about this when I was in Doha, the reminder of the passage of life and the days and the rapidity of it all. And I just needed to, to speak on it again and again and again because the wheels on the bus go round and round and the merry-go-round goes round and round and, and uh, pretty soon it's over. And you don't get to do a redo, right? No mulligans in life. Have you noticed that? I'm a terrible golfer. Some of you are better. Sorry, Larry. But uh, I've, I've swung with all my might, and it's dropped three inches off the tee, and I learned early on for a mulligan. I don't know if that's legitimate or not, but, Mark, we did that, right? I'm calling, and you try and do a redo, right? You don't get a redo in life. No mulligans. Your life might be a mulligan. No mulligans and no redos in, in life. And so this is from one of the wisdom psalms that we might, as God's children, if you know Christ the Savior, embrace these things, take them to heart, and build them practically in the way that you live your days, your hours, your moments, day by day by day. It's a wise man. It's a wise woman who takes these things utterly to heart and allows God's Word to make a difference. So Life is a Vapor is the title. It stands out clearly, and I was reminded as I studied it again this week, that, imagine that, I was studying this psalm on August the 19th, 1999, and later that morning I got a call that Faith is dead had died. So it's forever cemented in my mind the day that Pop went to heaven. And he was always talking about the brevity of life. Even at Faith in My Wedding, he stood to give testimony at the reception. He had written a letter, and he began by saying, life is a baseball game. And this is a long time ago, too, in 1976. And he said, I'm in probably the seventh inning of my life, but soon it will be over, and there won't be extra innings. And on this very day, in August 19, I was studying the psalm in 1999, and, and as the Lord would have it, that was the day his vapor ended and he went into glory. Well, take your Bible, look at Psalm 39. It's a brief psalm, only 13 verses in the English. You know, there have been occasions when, when Faith and I have eaten at places that advertise, and you've done the same thing, I'm sure. But I love this one, Endless King Crab Legs. I'll never forget that there in Fort Wayne. It was, uh, Mandy, it was actually Fort Wayne, Faith in an Endless uh, king crab legs. And you know the beauty of that place? They cracked them for you already. So you could just say, keep them coming. 
you didn't have to bother with the cracking them and, and making a mess and, and all the rest. Man, you could get down to, oh, they were good. Endless cr- king crab legs. I've had, we've eaten at endless salad bars. Have you done that? Endless, uh, king crab legs are more fun and certainly better. But endless salad bars, you've seen that every time. How about endless fixins? I've seen that. We've eaten there. It sounds more like down on the farm type thing, but it was good. I remember that as well. Well, really, really, think about it. It's really false advertising. Uh, they're lying to you because it's not like endless. I mean, somewhere there's an end to it. I mean, the chef in the back said, that's it. We're out of king crab leg. Zabolski has eaten them all. I mean, it's false advertising, right? They're not really endless. Well, on a much more serious note, all right? Let me encourage you, do not live your life as if you had an endless supply of days. For the reality is, you do not. In fact, you don't know when they'll end. And there's no guarantee. It's just not old people that die. I buried preemies that have been born stillborn. I buried babies as a pastor, young children. 16-year-olds killed in car accidents, those that have had leukemia at various ages that have died, all the way up through the spectrum. Now, it tends to be three score and ten, but it's no guarantee. Do not live your days as if you had an endless supply of them. I was reminded of that in the church at Doha where one of Greg's friends, and Warren, who was a general surgeon, and Greg, of course, to the ER, and their friend was uh, into uh, 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 the treatment of those with, with cancer. He was a German, German man, Hans, and his wife was not saved. We picked him up for Grace Fellowship Church, and I got to know Hans that way. Very, very nice man, young man. But I was so saddened to hear in recent months that Hans, at 38 years of age, an oncologist, went back to Berlin because he was diagnosed with stage 4 brain cancer. And his days were just about over. And he had asked Warren, and when I was there, actually Warren, the general surgeon, uh, flew to Berlin because he wanted to be with his Christian friend as his days were coming to an end. So much promise, so much to live for. Oh, Lord, why would you allow him? He could have done so much good. Allow his days to be so short. Well, we don't have the answer to that. But God has rhyme and reason and purpose. Oftentimes he keeps that only to himself. Don't live your days as if they're an endless supply. Your days are numbered by God. And it's a wise man, a woman, who considers each day as God's gift and uses it for, to the fullest. Such a, such a life glorifies God. It's living with the end in view, you know. It's living with the end in view. A good teacher will do that. Say, what is the objective of my lesson? What is it I want my students to know? What is it I want them to leave with? What skills, what ability that's teaching with the end in view? Well, we ought to live that way, day by day, realizing this may be the day. 
step off the curb and get hit by a bus or something like that or get a bad report. It happens in a fallen world. We studied it at length in the book of Ecclesiastes. It happens. It happens. Don't live your days like you have an endless supply of them. Tomorrow will always be there. It won't. Say That scares me. Well, that's preacher talk. No, it isn't. It's life. Read the newspaper. You'll see it every day. They're in terrible incident. They're in India this week. Mombi. What a horrible thing. It happens on the highways around us. People killed going home for Thanksgiving. Bad news. Bad reports. It's a wise man or woman who thinks about that and numbers their days and spends them wisely asking, what is the most important thing I can be doing today, this hour, this morning, this afternoon, and give yourself to that. That's what David's talking about here in this wisdom psalm. Jim Boyce writes, the world does not like to think about such things as life and death and eternity. Thinking about such things, he writes, spoils the fun and makes us harder to manipulate. Therefore, the world, the flesh, and the devil, they conspire to keep us amused and entertained. I've said it before, the word amused, muse means to think. It means to ponder. Think about. Amuse, the A in front of it, negates it. It means the realm of not thinking. You know that? When you sit down to be amused or to be entertained, basically it's the realm of not thinking mint. And you're very vulnerable, and so am I. And so he continues, he says, that's what most people do today. As they drift through life and pass through the dark doors of death, into eternity. Well, David is providing the rebuke to such folly in this Psalm 39. David writes this psalm in which he fusses and muses in his own life about the brevity and the uncertainty of life. We do well to hear his words and take them to heart. As uh, I was reminded even this week as I began to date uh, forward in the calendar of December, that finally one more flip in 08 is, uh, shall they say, it's, uh, it's history. It's over. It's in the history book. Never to be repeated again. And that's uh, where we are. It is uh, that time marches on. and We know that. and We think about that. But we need to think about it and allow it to impact us the way we live. Doing so will cause us to be wiser and to use our day, days in a way that more honors God. Well, four insights that come to us from this psalm, helping us to make the most of life by embracing, embracing life's brevity. Don't run from it. Don't be afraid of it. Don't hide. I know we're timid and fearful by nature, but there are four insights that will cause us to embrace it. For it sure is brief, and it is sure filled with uncertainty, isn't it? It sure is. Well, in verses 1, 2, and 3, it's sort of the preface, if you will. We find the first insight, and that says, Be careful what you say, 
when you are troubled by life. David, writing this, expresses his anguish at life. Let's look at verse 1, 2, and 3. I said, David writes, I will watch my ways and keep my tongue from sin. I'll put a muzzle on my mouth as long as the wicked are in my presence. But when I was silent and still, not even saying anything good, my anguish increased. My heart grew hot within me. And as I meditated, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. I'm saying to you, be careful what you say when you are troubled by life. There's a lot in life that may trouble you. There are a lot of valleys, there are a lot of dark times, there are a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of brokenheartedness, there's a lot of disappointment that finds us. I'm saying to you, be careful. David was careful here as he mused upon that. Now, he doesn't tell us in these, this first stanza what it is that's bothering him. In fact, he's fussing and fuming. He looks like he's going to explode in this expression. He grew hot, the anguish that's there. We want to tap him on the shoulder and say, David, what's bothering you? Because he doesn't tell us. We only know later as the psalm unfolds what it is. David uh, is fuming about uh, life. We know in the latter verses and because of its apparent meaninglessness. Yet David kept silent. Why did he do so? Why didn't he just let it all out, say what he was feeling, say what he was thinking? Well, he didn't do it because there were ungodly, unsaved, unregenerate men and women near him. And he knew that his words would be grossly misunderstood just as the unsaved, the unchurched, the non-Christian doesn't understand the language of Zion. They don't understand the gospel, the word of God, the glory of Christ, the wonder of these things. It's kind of like the language of Zion to them. It's a foreign tongue. And so fussing and fuming at a dark point in life so that those that don't know Christ as Savior should hear those words... David would refuse, would rather keep silent and uh, internalize, and, but he nearly explodes in the process. You see, number two, David knew his words would be misunderstood and misused by the unsaved that would hear him. They would use his words to actually criticize God in his ways. Later, at some point, uh, perhaps David would share with them the glory of God and their need of regeneration and and to be saved. And they would say, well, David, I remember at that point, and you said, and you, and we took it as uh, your discontentment with God, and your anger at God, and you were bitter with God. Well, what, why should I come to such a God as, as that? If you claim to know him, claim to be his child, and, and he should treat you as such, I'll have no business with him. And so David uh, rightfully thinks about that and uh, buttons his lip. Did you have a kindergarten teacher like I did that used to... We all, so most of the people know, you button it and lock it and throw the key away, right? And those little things. I'm, I'm more impressed the older I get that most things that you need to learn, you learn by the time you go to kindergarten. All right? Chew with your mouth shut, keep your hands to yourself, don't hit your neighbor. All these important things that big people sort of forget... And there are a whole list of them that, uh, you know, you, 
you're uncivilized and you become sort of civilized at home and if you got good parents and then your kindergarten teacher does the finished job. Everything else just sort of like window shine around, right? Window dressing all the way around. Well, he wouldn't say it. He'd shut his mouth and throw the key away. Well, B, David's behavior while he's in anguish, fussing and musing and fuming over this issue, uh, teaches us much, doesn't it? It teaches us that what we say is important. It's important. Your words and my words are very important. They ought to always be seasoned with grace. Your words, like mine, once we say them, you can never have them back again. Never. Oh, wouldn't you like to have some words back? I would. I would. But once you let them fly, they are gone forever. Things that we say to others, to our children, to our parents, those around, same to you, fella. You know, that kind of thing. You can never have them back. It's sort of like our dollars. Once you spend them, they're gone. Have you noticed that? There's not a string on it. Kind of pull that one back in. It's gone. Our money is like that. Our words are like that. Once we spend them, they're gone forever. And David is teaching us in his behavior what we say is important. We can sin with our tongues as well as any other body part. Be careful about that. Murmuring and complaining. David wouldn't do it. Unguarded ways are generally unholy ones. David is guarding his mouth. Somebody said that's why God imprisons the tongue with teeth. It's inside the jail cell. Keep it shut. Aren't you glad we don't have two tongues? I mean, God could have done that. Two ears, one th- quick to hear, slow to speak. James tells us two tongues, that'd be, an, that'd be a horrible thing. be kind of ugly looking anyway. One ear in the front, two t- I mean, just think about it. If you had a blank tablet, how you design. Instructive. Ears forward, mouth behind the teeth, in jail. Be careful. Be careful. Like sparks of fire, careless words spread and do great damage. Spurgeon wrote this, If believers speak bitter words against God in times of depression, in times of trouble, and we all have times like that, the ungodly will take our words and use them as justification for their sinful ways. He's right. He also said, that is Spurgeon, our one's tongue always needs watching, for it is as unruly as an unbroken wild horse. Most of us don't ride horses today, Janae, I know you do. But we have an idea, you've seen a Western, what a wild horse is like, that's your tongue. And that's mine, even though we're redeemed. No man can tame it, James said, only the Spirit. Well, David's behavior teaches us even more. Number two, it's better to be silent than say things that can be used by people against God. Think about that in your home when you deal with the ups and downs and disappointments and brokenness of life. How about bereaving times? What you say. Words are powerful words. Better to be silent, as David was here. It's a good warning to us when we are even in anguish and to do what he's going to do, and we'll note that in a moment, rather than to say things that can be used by ungodly people against God. You know, we want to be a part of the solution, don't we? Not a part of the problem. 
And if we're not careful with that slippery, slimy, one-pound piece of flesh in your mouth and in mine, we can be a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. And third, and so we should muzzle it. My mother used to say muzzle it to her kids. Muzzle it. You know what that means, right? Three, we should learn to take our troubles to the Lord in prayer. That's what David's going to do. And that's what we need to do. And so I need to ask, have you learned to keep silent when you're troubled? You don't need to tell it all. You don't need to spill all the beans out to everybody. And in your anguish, you're going to say things you wished in time you had not said. We need to be like David under the Spirit's control and keep our mouth shut and do what David does. And we see the second insight here in David in verse 4 does what we ought to do. And that is be encouraged. Your life, though brief, was designed by God to have real meaning. For when David finally speaks, I notice it's not to men. And this is what we need to do. He takes it to the Lord. Sounds like Philippians, doesn't it? Be anxious for nothing. Oh, we have all kinds of reasons to be worrisome. Troubled, anxious, disappointment. Be anxious for nothing, Paul said, but in everything. With prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. Now David uh, does just this. And I notice he doesn't even take it to godly advisors and people around him. Not bad in itself. But he doesn't do it. He takes his anguish of heart over this whole issue, and he takes it to the Lord in prayer. A, David unburdens his heart in prayer. He tells of being troubled by life's shortness and the corresponding emptiness of human existence. You have to admit, he does sound here in this wisdom psalm, the Psalm 39, like Solomon, his son, as Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. It sounds just like him. Life seems empty. It seems vain. It seems to make no sense at all. And so David unburdens his heart in prayer to the Lord. Now, let's read the text. Look at verse 4. Show me, and this is his prayer, Show me, O Lord, my life's end, and the number of my days. Let me know how fleeting is my life. You have made my days a mere handbreadth. In the Hebrew, it's four fingers. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Man is a mere phantom as he goes to and fro. He bustles about, but only in vain. He heaps up wealth, not knowing who will get it. But now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Be encouraged. Your life, though brief, is numbered by God and has meaning and has purpose. It really does. The key word here is, uh, is the word I have it on your sheet is habel. It's that same word that his son Solomon used in Ecclesiastes. It's the word for breath, the habel. Life is a breath. Verses 5, 6, and 11, he uses it. Breath and 6, it's vanity. And 11, it's breath. It's the same word. And the idea, is there anything less than an exhaled breath? 
This is my life, and it's like an exhale. It's going to be, pretty soon it's going to be below freezing uh, in the next few days probably. You go outside, and uh, you'll see your breath as you exhale. That moisture will condense, and you'll see it. That's your life. It's there, and it's gone. That's what he is saying here. James uses the same idea, the half-brother of Jesus, and life is a vapor. We have those verses from James chapter 4, verses 13 to 16. Let's look at them. I have them on the front screen. Now listen, James writes, you say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, make money. Why Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a vapor, a mist, a breath that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or do that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. And that's what he is saying to us. Now, you probably won't remember anything else I've said today, although I wish you would. But you will remember this. I have said for years I was going to do this. I bought this. It's got Arabic on the back. I ran out when I was in Qatar, and I bought this. Faith likes the smell of this, too. But this is what God says your life is. You want to see your life? How many want to see your life? Here it is. It's gone. Now, you know, it's so short you want to call for a a rerun, right? Here it is again. This is what God's saying. This is your... That does smell good. <laughs> it's gone. It's a vapor. That's your life. It's a vapor. That's what has David so musing and fussing and in anguish. It's a vapor. James is right. David is really seeking wisdom. And number two, he's asking the Lord to help him realize life's brevity and uncertainty. Here today, maybe gone tomorrow. So that instead of being troubled by it, instead of being troubled by it, that he might cast himself more completely upon the Lord. That's what he means in verse 7, because the whole psalm focuses on this verse, but now, Lord, what do I look for? Here it is, my hope. My hope. It's not a weak word like the English word hope. My utter confidence, my rock, my masada, my all in all, my foundation for everything, he is saying, is in you. That's the only thing that makes this uncertain and brief life make any sense at all. That's what he's saying to us. That's the message of the psalm, if you will. My hope is in you. And so David is telling us what he learned in turning to the Lord in prayer. Here's what it is. Number one, the brevity of life may be puzzling, and it is. Why should a little baby die or a stillborn or a child suffer some of the terrible things and and St. Jude's Hospital, and other places that just pull at the heartstrings and cause us to shed a tear, 
leukemia, the child killer, and other things. It's a puzzle. The brevity of life may be puzzling, but David learned it is something that God has designed. Verse 5. You, you, have, you have made my days a mere four fingers, a hand breath. God has designed it. And life, as we know, is no accident. And it is good because God is good. So what is he saying? That uh, life, though it's brief and it's filled with uncertainty for those who are even redeemed, it is still good. It still has purpose. It's not a sick joke. It's uh, not nonsensical. It has meaning and purpose. Why? Because God has purposely designed your days and my days to be lived for his glory. And God who is who is good and everything that he has ever done is good has made your life to be good. Remember the creation account on the first day and God saw that it was good. And the second day and God saw that it was good. And each day of that creation week it reminds us that all that God does is good. And it's not an accident. God didn't look at our lives and say, Whoa, I didn't know they were only going to live that many days. That's no good. No, God has orchestrated. He's designed it. He's sovereign. And our lives are of his making. All our days are written in his book before we should even live one of them. We're to number our days and use them rightly, and life still is good. Even a fallen world, good, and God wants to do good in and through us so that we're satisfied. Satisfaction. You are the one who is saying, Lord, who gives my life meaning. One man writes, I'm restless in the heart of heart until I find my rest in you. That's what he's saying. God has fixed the number of our years. Psalm 139, 16 reminds us of, of just that. Your eyes, David writes, saw my unformed body all the days ordained for me, written in your book before one of them came to be. God has designed them. He is good and he has made life to be good, to be enjoyed, and to satisfy the hearts of his children. That's you if you know Christ as Savior. And the second thing that Davis, David tells us that he learned since life is so short, the only thing that can give life meaning, give meaning to our life, is a relationship with God. And that is found only through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And it's the only way that you have a relationship with God is through his Son. Have you come to know him as your Savior? You must. God so loved the world that he gave, his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And he has reconciled men and women to himself through his own cross. Pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And that is how we come to know him. That's why at Christmas we call him Emmanuel, God with us. God made flesh. Even the Lord Jesus. Since life is short, the only thing that gives meaning to your life, the only thing, it's not your bank account, it's not your flowery personality, we know that's not true, certainly not your good looks, 
Anyways, some of you do look good, but it's fading, right? It's fading, fading, and going, going, right? Little dab here, little dab there. But it's going. It's going. It's not because you can shoot the basket into the hoop and make more points, so I wish I could have done that a little bit more, but that's going too. There's nothing that may, it's not your, it's not your job. It's not to become, you know, I'm, I'm the club member. I can golf with a, you know, a low handicap. Is that the right way, Larry? Low handicap? Yeah, that's what you want. Okay. Uh, all those things, none of those things. It's your relationship with God found only through Christ that satisfies the longings of your restless heart. Apart from that, life seems like a sick joke. Makes no sense. Seems nonsensical. And off we go on this parade toward death. Uncertain and brief life makes no sense. David is saying that it's only as I discover that my hope is in you, verse 7. For God alone is the sufficient eternal reference point of life. All else is passing away. What do we mean by that? Eternal reference point. You see, uh, when sailors uh, would sail on the sea uh, in days gone by, before our days of satellite navigation and all that good stuff today, the GPS systems and all, triangulation and all that, what they would do is they would, uh, they would know where the North Star was. And if they could see the North Star out on the open sea, they knew how to navigate exactly where they were. Now, that is what God is. He's the eternal reference point to us. Without our eyes fixed upon him, without an intimate relationship with him through his own son, you don't know who you are, you don't know what you're supposed to be doing, and you don't know where you're going, and it all seems totally, grossly nonsensical. That's what David is saying. My hope is in you. You're the only thing that provides meaning to my life that satisfies. You're here and you don't know Christ and you've never known him. That's where you are. You've found the emptiness of climbing the ladder or the corporate rung or of filling the bank account or the house or life with amusement or entertainment. Oh, it gives you a little bit of lift and then you come crashing down. You want to run and find the next sort of anesthesia uh, that... Uh, that blocks the reality of life and death, and it marches on in this thing called the uncertainty and the brevity of life of which we all live. It is only found in God. When I was a Boy Scout, they taught us how to use the compass and uh, to get a map. And uh, one of the key things with a compass, of course, is magnetic north. You have to be able to find magnetic north, and once you find magnetic north, and you know where south is, and you know where west is, and east, and you can make your way as you lay that down over a compass. So a couple of you guys were Eagle Scouts. You could really wax eloquently more than I could on that. But magnetic north, without that, you can't even find south. You don't know where anything is, especially in an overcast day or at night. You don't know where you are. That's what God is to us in his own son Christ. He provides meaning, direction in life. Without it, we would be utterly lost. Utterly, utterly lost. Well, verses 8 through 11, David 
provides the third insight, helping us to make the most of life by embracing his brevity. In 8 through 11, we, we hear his words, and we, we ought to beware through discipline that God is preparing. It should be you for eternity. Verses 8 to 11, uh, uh, David introduces a, an additional problem at this point. You see, life here and now is actually God's schoolroom. It's a schoolhouse, if you will. God is in the midst of preparing you not to do advanced mathematics or language or uh, health science or phys ed, or no history or all these kind of good things, but he's preparing you for eternity. That's what he's up to. And that's why he deals with us as a father deals with uh, his children. He deals with our sin. In verses 8 to 11, let's read, Save me, David says, from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent and would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. David, please remove your scourge from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. You rebuke and discipline men for their sin. You consume their wealth like a moth. Each man, here it is, is but a habel, a breath, a vapor. David, as I said, introduces an additional problem at this point. He wonders why God makes so much of man that he would even involve himself. David obviously was, uh, at this point, suffering maybe a a spanking from God because of sin in his life. Maybe it was illness. A lot of the writers think he was sick. It's amazing how God can speak to his children even more clearly, not in the bright sunny days of life, but when we're laying flat on our beds, looking up into heaven, feeling pretty poor, wondering if we're going to make another day or two. It's amazing how that unclogs our ears, isn't it? And David is sick, I really believe he is, that God is spanking him because he was wayward. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. What? It's God's schoolhouse. He's preparing us. But David's thought in this is, if man is so puny and his life is so uncertain and God is so great and he is from this point to that point everlasting, why does God even bother with puny men and women are here but a moment, but are only a breath of vapor and soon gone. Why does God even bother? That's his point here. Man is so small and puny and his existence so fleeting, God seems yet to use a heavy hand in dealing with him. Well, I have to tell you, this sounds like Job in Job chapter 7. We've listed that here for you in uh, in 7, 17 to 21, look on the screen. You'll see what Job writes. He's saying the same thing, and Job expresses this in the midst of his anguish, his physical suffering, and the bereavement and loss that he endured. Look what he says. Job writes, What is man that you make so much of him, that you give him so much attention, that you examine him every morning and test him every moment? Will you never look away from me or let me alone even for an instant? If I have sinned, what have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? 
Look what he writes. For I will soon lie down in the dust, and you will search for me, but I will be no more. Job is asking the same thing as, uh, as David here. Why, what is man that you make so much of him? Just leave him alone. Leave me alone. I'm nothing, as it were. You're great. I'm small. Uh, in a day, figuratively speaking, or so it seems, I will be gone. Why do you bother? God, are you a bully? What's the point? What is it? Spurgeon, uh, Shakespeare, when uh, he wrote Macbeth, uh, many believe that when he wrote of Macbeth's despairing speech, some of you will know it, many of you may not, it's commonly called Out, Out, Brief Candle in Act 5 of Macbeth. And many believe that Shakespeare, who I believe was a Christian, and that's a pseudonym, his, I don't think his name was Shakespeare, well, we believe he was a Christian because so many of the things he writes in his characters portray the reality of real life and redemption and human condition. And there uh, he puts in the words of Macbeth in this despairing speech, out, out, brief candle. We believe Shakespeare was thinking of this Psalm 39. Here's what he says. Life, this is Macbeth, life is but a a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, and signifying nothing. Well, Jim Boyce, writing and making comment on that very act, writes this and adds, although man is a passing creature who often does merely strut and fret his short hour upon life's stage, yet he is more. He is more than a passing creature of an earthly day. For he was made, she was made for eternity. In fact, we were made for God himself. And so the answer in B of Roman rule 3 is that God disciplines us as his children because he is now preparing us to live with him forever. He's preparing us. We are in school. One of the things I always loved about Pennsylvania with deer season tomorrow, I think it's the only state in the union that does it, no school for the kids on, on uh, deer season day, to the envy of all school children in 49 other states. What? Pennsylvania, opening day, no school? Nobody's at the schoolhouse. Well, there's another schoolhouse that's going on, and there is school. It's God's schoolhouse, and he's in the middle of preparing you. If you know Christ the Lord is your Savior, is knocking off the sinful bents that each one of us have, conforming us, Romans 8.28, into the image of Jesus Christ, preparing us now for the future day to be with him. For you were made, not for yourself, not for your family, but you were made for God himself. And that's what God is up to. And so what we do now really does matter in how we live. 
it's important. Some of you watch on public television the TV show, That Old House. Have you ever seen that? That's a great show. It, uh, it's amazing how they take these uh, shacks that look like a good match is what they need. And uh, they got the thing, and they redo it, and they add something on the back and put skylights and windows and, and new bath and kitchens, and you go like, I can't believe it. Look at that. Oh, I wish I could do that kind of thing. Man, that's really something. That old house is now beautiful. Well, that's what God is doing in your life, in this brief thing, in this uncertain world called life. He's renovating you, and he's renovating me. And so he makes much of us. He doesn't just let us go and run in the avenues of sin. If you love him, he's going to... He's going to pat you on the behind. He's going to do what he needs to to get your attention. Why? Because he's preparing you. He's preparing me for heaven. It's infinitely more important. The last stanza of the psalm, and then he closes. It's the fourth insight, helping you and helping me to make the most of life by bracing its, its brevity. It's simply this, be comforted. Not only be careful, be encouraged, beware, but now be comforted for soon. If you know Christ the Lord as your Savior, you will be home. In verses 12 to 13, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for help. Be not deaf to my weeping. For I dwell with you as a foreigner, as an alien, as a stranger, as all my fathers were. Look away from me, that I may rejoice again before I depart. He's talking about his death and am no more. And so I say, be comforted, for you soon, you too soon will be home. This is the pilgrim principle. This is it. That's what we are. We remember them, particularly the 1620 pilgrims with Thanksgiving week, didn't we? Oh, Plymouth Rock and all of that, the Mayflower. They're pilgrims. Pilgrims mean they're wanderers and strangers and aliens. Uh, they weren't home. We're not home. We have a lot of creaturely comforts and live in large homes and have a lot of things built in, and we, we cozy up and we feel pretty good here at home. And, um, and sometimes it's hard for us to imagine we're not home. We are not home. You can't imagine to see what home's going to be like. Home, what a wonderful word that is, isn't it? Look at Peter writes of it in, in his epistle, First Peter uh, he tells us in chapter 2, I hit the wrong verse, it should be 2.11. We, we have that, here it is, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens, that's foreigners, and strangers, that means people that aren't home, in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. This is not home. We're aliens here, soon, to, oh, so soon to depart. Departure. Mm. Foreigners. Home. Have you ever been away from home? Some of you were in the military. Far away. I know, Galen, you were in the South Pacific. And, and some of you have been far away in military. Todd, I know you were in Florida. We'll pray for you with that. Military. Who else was in the military? Who else? Others? Others? Oh, yeah, Laura, yeah, Laura. 
Yeah, you guys, Chris. Yeah, far, far away. How far were you, Chris? Florida. <laughs> yeah, the enemy's down there. <laughs> How far were you away? Where? Korea. Korea. That's a long way. My brother was over on the DMC for a year in Korea. Others? Is Bruce here? Yes, George? Saudi Arabia. Eli? Panama. Panama. Wow. The Canal Zone. My father's still upset that they gave that away. In heaven. Who else? <laughs> and some of you have had occasion to travel far. Ron, where were you? Germany. Yeah, Ron, where were you? I'm going to sign up. Florida, Florida, Hawaii. I've been reading the wrong posters. <laughs> but away from home, and some of you have traveled. You've been students far away, and some of you have had occasion to be away. And it's not like the Wizard of Oz with Dorothy, right? No place like home. Somewhere over the rainbow. No place like home. This is not that place. We're not in Oz. This is not home. This is a foreign place. Someday we will be home. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I couldn't wait when I was over in Qatar in October to finally be home. I kept counting the days down. Couldn't wait to come home. Simple things like sleeping in your own bed, right? And being with your loved ones and your church family. Just to be home. It's got to be one of the most wonderful words in the English language, right? To be home. Home before dark. Home. That's what we'll be. Spurgeon wrote, based on this verse, he said, When sorrows fill our eyes with tears, God will soon turn our mourning into joy. And his idea was when we're home. Well, what are some lessons for our life? We think about the brevity of life and the shortness of it. What about lesson number one? As you turn the calendar, not only for tomorrow, but soon 08 will be gone forever. Think about the brevity of life. Spend your days wisely. Soon they'll be all over. They'll be over. And I don't know if you, they'll be over when you're 26 or 18 or 10 or 36 or 66 or 106. It won't be much beyond that. I know that for sure. They'll be over. Billy Graham said, now that I'm near the end, he said, realize of time, talent, and treasury, time is the most precious thing. And for me, it's almost over. And that's the truth for all of us. It's a wise man. It's a wise woman that embraces that. Don't be afraid of it. Embrace it and use your days for the glory of God. Number two. Number two. As the days pass, let me urge you with everything in me to give yourself increasingly to the Lord and to His work. Only what's done for Christ will last. We know that little jingle. We occupy ourselves with things that are of secondary nature. And the Lord's going to review our life. What are you doing with that precious yet brief thing called life? What did you do? Look, 
We have a mission field right here in Mechanicsburg, the east and the west shore. This is our mission field. That we would have open our lives and our homes to people that God has strategically placed us around. That we would use our talents and our abilities to reach people, to be a blessing. That's the most wonderful thing. You know, you'll forget a lot of people in life. But the one that, that shares the gospel of Jesus with you, you'll never forget their name. Never. And it's my burden that we become unlearned, unleashed as a church. That we'll have a vision and a burden and a compassion for our neighbors and people around us. And it doesn't matter if we're afraid and we kind of don't know exactly what to say. So what? We're all like that. We'll be burdened to see people come to know Jesus. There is nothing else. Nothing. You saw David in the psalm. Man heaps up wealth. We pile it up, we pile it up. And he said, not knowing who will get it. Because when you go, you leave it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's renew ourselves and open our homes and our lives. Start Bible studies. Reach out. Love people. Care for them. And share with them in increasing numbers. And in the midst of that, love them enough. So you've got to come to grace. You've got to hear the Word of God. Let's fill this place to the glory of God alone. I could care less if anyone knows my name. It's a weird name anyway. It doesn't matter to me. But they need to know the name that is above all names. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Number three, remember you are not home. Live here as a citizen of heaven. You're a pilgrim, an alien, a stranger, a wanderer. Don't get so cozy here that you're not sure that you're anxious about going home. Number four, Accept God's discipline in your life. He's preparing you now for himself. As God puts his finger on things in your life, sin that ought not be there as his children, like a good father. You wouldn't tolerate that in your family, if your son or your daughter of a young age. You would deal with that. God loves us enough to do that. Hear his rebuke and his correction. Respond to that. Know that it's the spanking that says, I love you as he prepares you for heaven. Number five and last. If you have never been saved, you need to be warned. You soon will die. You're not ready. You are not ready. There's a heaven, there's a hell, that's it. There's not nirvana, there's not nothingness, or all this nonsense. There's heaven, there's hell. You must be saved. Oh, if I can help you in that, any of our men, our ladies, don't leave here. Well, don't let the day pass. You have no guarantee of tomorrow without crying out before your head hits the pillow. Lord Jesus, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. And God will save you from the penalty of all your sin. Paid in full at Calvary. Paid in full. Well, the next time you see the sign at the restaurant, right? Endless salad bar, don't you believe it? Endless crab legs, call me if you see that sign. Endless fixings, mm, I might be tempted there too. Well, there is something that's not endless. And David reminds us, 
Don't spend your days like you have an endless supply, for you do not.